Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. In this week's issue, you may remember the song, Love is in the Air. Well, how about Love is on the Ground? Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez with this sweet love story. Coming up, we talk about mangoes, one of South Florida's favorite fruit, and the link to keep these trees fruitful. Plus, NOAA issued their mid-season hurricane update. They still suggest a 60% chance for an above average year. Make sure you stay alert and ready. But what happens after a hurricane has come and gone? You find yourself without power and crank up the portable generator. But this wonderful piece of machinery can be a dangerous one. Again, planning is key. You don't want to try your generator for the first time before you need it. Meteorologist Erica Delgado helps keep you powered up and safe. All that and a fill fact coming up. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma. He guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. Mangoes are wonderful, tasty fruits. But it seems they may need a little helping in order to procreate and a weed may just be the answer to the problem. Let's face it, keeping the spark alive in any relationship requires a lot of work, and it is especially hard for fruit trees to attract pollinators. This week on Whether or Not, we talked to Blair Kleiman, an FIU Institute of Environment graduate teaching assistant and alumna, who has found an unexpected source that keeps this relationship fruitful, weeds. Blair was the recipient of the prestigious FIU Presidential Fellowship to pursue a PhD in studying climate change and how it will impact agriculture. She is studying one of South Florida's favorite fruit trees, mangoes. Mango season in South Florida is upon us. And I wanna thank you for joining whether or not as we discuss your work and how this will impact agriculture. Why did you choose to study mango? I chose to study mango because it's an extremely important, economically valuable crop that we grow extensively in South Florida, uh, but it is pollinator dependent and not a lot of is known about the pollination of mango and ways that we can help to improve it and increase yields. And I chose mango also because unlike other tropical fruit trees that we grow in South Florida, like lychee, Mango almost always will flower and produce. So that's why I chose it because my study was just one year. So I needed something that I was sure would flower. And you're a native South Floridian too. So that also helps. Yeah, it does help. And I, I grew up eating mangoes every summer and having neighbors give me their different varieties. So I love mango and we all love it here in South Florida. I know I do. And can you talk to us about the importance of pollination? Why is this so important to us? Insect pollination is the most important type of pollination and especially for agriculture and almost all fruits and vegetables require it to produce what we like to eat. And so many fruits and vegetables won't 
be produced unless a specific insect visits their flower and deposits pollen to allow cross-pollination and fruit yields. So having good insect pollination can increase actually the quality of the fruits, make them bigger, taste better, and last longer on the shelf. So it's extremely important to have pollinating insects for agriculture and worldwide it's valued at $217 billion. And this is even growing as we produce more and more fruits and veggies for growing populations. Wow, that's incredible. And it is indeed like the laws of attraction. There needs to be some sort of attraction for any relationship to thrive. And it is not easy for some people and also true for fruit trees. Now, in the case of the mango trees, why is it so difficult for them to get pollinated? This is a good question and something that we don't really know a lot about, but I think it's that mango trees produce thousands of flowers way more than will eventually produce mangoes, but it's hard for all of these flowers to get pollinated per tree. So we're looking at ways to increase the pollination of all these flowers to increase crop yields, but mangoes have very small, if you look at their flowers, they're not very attractive and large and showy for pollinators to find and and to pollinate. Um, And hand pollination is just a painstaking process and has a low success rate, so it's not a viable option. So we really need to find these pollinators that are attracted to these inconspicuous flowers and find a reliable and successful way to pollinate them. And it's thought that tiny flies are the ones that are the best pollinators for mango because the the mango flowers kind of don't smell that great and flies uh, evolve to be the only ones that are attracted to mango flowers. Why are pollinator numbers drastically declining? And what does this mean for mangoes? It's really that we're losing habitat worldwide. A lot of natural habitat is being lost and without the plants that pollinators rely on, they're just going extinct or declining in populations because pollinators require and rely on certain flowers for pollen and nectar and also for really specific nesting areas to reproduce. So when we're converting natural areas to farmlands or urban areas, there's just no way for pollinators to persist in the ecosystem. And Homestead is interesting because it's becoming more and more urbanized and and suburban area, but we still have these pockets of farms and natural areas like Pine Rockland habitats, and it's also really close to the Everglades. So I think Homestead's a good way to give us hope that we can help to, if we provide these pollinating resources in farms, it can help to expand the last insects that we have out of natural areas and into the more farmland areas. Now, I just can't imagine a world without mangoes because like we talked about, this is a fruit that we love. We're native South Floridians. And I know it's like a staple in my family when in season and we use it to make shakes, salsa, jam, you name it. And it made for really interesting conversations with my uncle growing up because my uncle talked a lot about Cuban folklore and Cuban folklore talked about a correlation between mango in a given season and hurricane activity. And he always said that if there were a lot of mangoes in one season, that there will be fewer hurricanes. And I'm not sure how much truth there is to that, but it always made for some interesting conversations. 
Mm -hmm. That's true. Maybe that folklore developed because mangoes require a minimum nighttime temperature of 59 degrees. So kind of cold for five days. So maybe if you have that cooler weather, it it was definitely fun and interesting to talk to him because he had all sorts of stories. (laughs) Now there are different types of pollination processes. Can an ugly looking weed be the answer to keep mango trees producing fruit? I think that's a really (laughs) interesting question. So like what we talk about for weeds, these are just These are just naturally growing plants that we as humans deem undesirable or unsightly, but a lot of weeds are actually just native wildflowers and they have evolved these relationships with pollinators to provide floral resources to them. So my idea was to see that if weeds can help to bridge this gap in the lack of pollinator habitats and have them act as wildflowers, to support and attract insects and keep them in and around mango farms. And so this is especially important for mango because they have a short flowering season. So if you think about it, the rest of the year when the mangoes aren't flowering, there's just this huge flowerless area. It's just all vegetation, no flowers. So having flowering weeds can help to attract pollinators to your farm and keep them in the farm when the crop is flowering to ensure the pollination of your mango trees when they do flower. How can that long-term relationship be established between the fruit trees and the pollinators? Mm -hmm. This is a good thing to think about. It's really just keep flowers and nesting resources for pollinators all year long, especially in your farm. So Insects, especially pollinators, really like a diversity of flowers, and they need at least 15 different varieties of flowers to be healthy. And so if you add these host plants or flowering plants to help to support their larval stages like caterpillars, especially for butterflies, and you provide the flowers for the adults to feed in, you can help to support these populations. And then there's also, you have to think about the larval stage of pollinators, so bees like to nest in the ground and they need bare soil. So farms can actually be a really good place for bees to nest because they have this bare soil, but you can't till the soil. So don't disturb their homes underground. Also some native bees are cavity nesters. So they need dead wood or hollow stems to provide homes. So let's let the cut down branches, leave them in your farm to provide these hollow places for bees to nest. And weeds can help to provide these floral and nesting resources. I think they also provide ground cover. And an example I saw in the mango farm was that the more weeds we had, there was more small rodents like mice. And when these mammals or small rodents die, they can become larval hosts for maggots which turn into blowflies and other types of flies, which are the best pollinators of mango. So having these larval sources for your most important pollinators is a way to incorporate these different habitats and increase their populations. That's really interesting. So it's, it's like a cycle. You're Mm -hmm. using your natural resources, keeping that ecosystem flowing. Mm -hmm. And having a diversity of all the different resources for the different life stages. And what will happen if there is no pollination? We would have the end of society as we know it. Humans and terrestrial, other terrestrial ecosystems would collapse. 
there would be really just a, a, a huge loss of biodiversity and ecosystem services. And I don't see a world persisting without pollinators. Um, we would have a huge reduction in our fruits and vegetables on, for one thing, these, and the ones that would be able to be wind pollinated are just not gonna be as good tasting or we'd be totally reliant on like grains, which are wind pollinated. We wouldn't have any good fruits or veggies. And 80% of the world's flowering plants rely on pollinators to reproduce. So without pollinators, you, all of these plants would go extinct and all of our really good produce wouldn't be able to be produced anymore. I mean, looking at, at a small scale, like you were mentioning, it would result in fruitless trees, but in a large scale, mm -hmm it would imply that there's going to be a shortage in supplies and that's significant. Yeah. So we know that honeybees pollinate about a third of all the crops and are literally responsible for the food that we all eat. Yeah. But we know that there are other pollinators out there pollinating agents and you've discussed a couple of them, but what are the different kinds of or main pollinating agents and why do they visit flowers? So pollinators can come in kind of all shapes and sizes. The main insect pollinators are bees, like you said, honeybees, but also other small native bees. Also flies are actually really important pollinators. And for mango, these are the best pollinators. So we love flies. And butterflies can also be important pollinators for a lot of plants. And also some non-insect pollinators are birds and even some small mammals and even bats. But for insect pollinators, these native and honeybees are the most dominant for agricultural plants. They are just the most abundant and they visit flowers regularly for food like nectar and pollen. And pollinators and flowers have developed this symbiotic relationship, which we call pollinator syndromes where flowers have specific characteristics to help to entice these pollinators to ensure that they visit and allow the flowers to reproduce. So each crop has developed its own relationship and pollination syndrome. So ensuring the presence and health of a huge variety of different types of pollinators, so bees, flies, and other pollinators is extremely important for farmers to ensure that you have pollination of all your different crops. And do you think weeds can help other flowering plants aside from the mango trees? Yeah, I think that this research can be translated to pretty much any other flowering crop or other flowering plant. And that weeds are a huge untapped and understudied resource to help these other plants. We have to think of them as native flowers. And a lot of weeds are low lying. So they're very small herbaceous vegetation. They don't outcompete with crops, especially for huge trees like mango. And they provide a, a large variety of resources in addition to crops to help to support pollinators. So they can help to attract pollinators to your farm. And once these are here, they can spill over onto the less attractive flowers like mango flowers. And for mango, Having these small weedy flowers doesn't negatively affect these mature trees and they actually don't take away a lot of water or nutrients and can just really benefit pollinators and fruit yield greatly. And what do you hope comes out of your research? I hope that conventional farmers, especially tropical fruit 
farmers can consider using weeds as these insectary plants to increase biodiversity on their farms and that they can think about the different species of flowers that they are killing by removing the weeds using herbicides or mowing them and spraying pesticides on their farms. And I hope that farmers can try to think of their farms as a bridge to help reduce the loss of habitat and biodiversity, especially as farms are the greatest reason that we convert and destroy natural areas across the globe, and that they try to incorporate increasing biodiversities within their farm. And that having more biodiverse farms and making them more sustainable in the long run is extremely important and it makes farms less reliant on industrial inputs like pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers. And having more biodiverse farms even makes them more resilient and adaptive to climate change and the increasing stress events that we're seeing like hurricanes. And can you talk to us a little bit about climate change and mangoes? There are so many increasing threats to farms in South Florida between the urbanization of South Florida, the loss of farmland to more urban areas, even volatile markets are impacting farmers. So the the decreasing price for how much you can sell your crop for. And then climate change is also really impacting farms. We're seeing that these Farms in South Florida are seeing rising temperatures, and this is something that when I spoke to a lot of tropical farmers in South Florida, they are very worried about this because they said they are already growing these tropical crops at the extreme temperature range for many of the crops, including mango. And mango is special because it requires a minimum nighttime temperature of 59 degrees for five nights to induce flowering. So if it's too hot, your mango trees won't flower or they'll be messed up. You'll have an off sex ratio. So you'll have too many male flowers, which don't give us any fruit. And also we're seeing that hurricanes and increasing wind and rain and storm surge are increasing in intensity with global warming. So this has potentially catastrophic effects to our farms in South Florida. But mango is better suited than most other crops grown in South Florida because they are really big trees with mature, deep tap roots. So these deep roots allow them to be more sturdy in a hurricane and they can access the water table easily. So you don't have to worry about watering during a drought. On the other hand, our vegetable and our small annual crops, they can be replanted after a hurricane and they grow much much faster than mango and they'll be able to produce really fast after you have a catastrophic event versus mango where it can take decades to achieve the impressive yields that we see from our current mango trees in Homestead. And also a lot of our rare mango trees can't be easily replaced after a hurricane or some other event. Um, Also sea level rise and saltwater intrusion is also a concern for farms and especially for ones that use well water, which most farmers do. So if you have increasing salt in your well water, it's not suitable for growing crops. And for mango, the farmers usually don't need to irrigate the trees because they are so mature and they have those deep tap roots so they can access the water table. But again, this could mean that trees are accessing salty groundwater, which we don't know the effects for tree health. Which is why it's important knowing about what you're growing and where you're going to do it and what is going to benefit the growth of this crop. And all the different resources that you need to grow. 
and how they can be changed and how we're impacting that. Absolutely. Just like when we had talked about orchids, they need a specific location, place, certain orchids need to be certain temperatures. They like the heat or others thrive in the cold. So you have to know where and what you're dealing with. And when you can grow them, especially for crops, sometimes you can only grow in the summer, only in the winter. And that could be changing as we have warmer climates. Weather does play a big role, the warming, whether it's too cold, whether it's too hot. So farmers have a lot to contend with and they need to to be weather aware as well. And of all these uh, changing patterns that we've been noticing, climate change. Yeah. And something about mango too, is if it's, if it's too hot, it needs that cool like period to induce flowering. But if it's too hot after it flowers, that makes it just produce a lot more leaves and then no flowers at all. If you, all these different temperature like roles <laughs> can impact how your mango trees can grow and develop, give you fruit. <laughs> On a side note, cause there are different types of mango trees. And there's different types of mangoes that are grown, not only here in South Florida, but across the Caribbean, across the globe too. So I'm assuming that it's different too for all those different types of mango trees. Yes. They're all the same species. They're just different varieties. The things that we eat are just different varieties, but they do have different physiological like needs. And so you see that some flower at different times of the year and they produce fruit. Sometimes they fruit for six months or only a few months. So many different factors you have to think about as a farmer. So I'm, I'm not sure what the farmers do to ensure. I think the farmer that I worked with, he applied the same things to all his different varieties of crop of mango. So he put the same fertilizer, the same pruning methods for all of the trees. And they kind of just all got it together and flowered and fruited when they internally had knew that they needed to. I'm interested in all the different varieties too, because it's really cool how, and just how they grow them too. They attach this, like, it's called grafting. You can have one, one variety, and then you can just have a random limb that's growing a different variety and giving you a different fruit from that one limb, that one branch of a tree. <laughs> I did not know so that. Yeah, you can kind of like combine or morph two different varieties in one. There's some trees that are just half this, half that. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that that existed. Just like slice it and hold it together and they end up merging as one tree. <laughs> wow, so I'm assuming that that has to be done in a lab, right? The grafting? Um, they do it in the fields. And it's, it's a very, like, you have to be precise about it to get them to like actually coalesce as one unit and not just die. But, and usually it's when they're young trees. If you have like a seedling, you can graft it easily. It's easier than growing things from seed. Sometimes you just have a seed and it turns into one thing and not the variety that you specifically want. So grafting is like more reliable, but then you have to think about, you have two different varieties on one tree. What if they need different requirements grow or flower or fruit. That's interesting. So they have to get it right and they have to know when to do it too. Yep. They have to know when to do it and how to treat the tree as it's growing the different needs that they might have. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Vivian. More whether or not when we come back. Some here. 
weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station. Seven News. Portable generators can be a wonderful tool to have after the passage of a storm. But if not used properly, they can turn deadly. Erica Delgado with the story. Hurricane season is here, and as history has shown us all, all it takes is just one storm for emergency management and our preparedness plan to take shape. And part of that preparedness plan for South Florida includes secondary power in the event of an emergency. That's where portable generators come in. But the first step is owning a portable generator, while the second step is knowing how to operate one safely. And joining me today to keep us safe while powered on is Senior Director of Global Safety and Product Compliance at Harbor Freight Tools, Guillermo Rodriguez, who is also a part of Portable Generator Manufacturers Association. Guillermo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Erica. I'm happy to be here and help the South Florida community stay safe and learn more about the proper use of portable generators. Great. So tell us a little bit about the proper placement of a portable generator when using it at home. Place your generator as far away as possible, taking your generator outside away from your home, garage, shed, truck bed, or any other fully enclosed or partially enclosed location where carbon monoxide emissions can build up. The reason is quite simple. Carbon monoxide can kill. And you can't see it or smell it. It is impossible for the human senses to detect carbon monoxide. With that said, having carbon monoxide detectors, make sure they're battery powered. One last point to consider, never use your generator near windows, doors, or vents. Making sure there's enough supplies, things like extension cords, which should be placed far away from the dwelling. So when you think about a generator, you're thinking about powering things like a, a fridge, a freezer. So you want to plan the length of those extension cords and then where the location of that generator would go uh, ahead of the storm. That's very important as well. So once you have that portable generator at home and you've acquired the, the proper distance from your home, from start to finish, what are proper steps when actually using a portable generator? Because I realize that many of us, this would be a one-time thing or maybe you know, once in, in every few years and we really don't know how to actually use a portable generator. That's a great question, Erica. Always read the operator's manual first and before using your portable generator, become familiar with its operation. Ideally, what you want to do is try it out before you need it. Of course, always following the manufacturer's recommended precautions and procedures. We talk about emergency management and in the case of an emergency for us here in South Florida, that would be during hurricane season when we, you know, there is a, a very wide power adage. But in what scenarios would or could one actually use a portable generator? There are many different scenarios. Portable generators give you the power you need when you don't have access to traditional sources of electric power. Generators are, hard, are in high demand in three typical settings. First, emergencies, as you pointed out, such as during power outages uh, due to extreme weather. Second, recreation, campsites, 
outdoor events, parties, and last for professional use, for example, worksite applications. In any of these scenarios, what are some signs that the generator may actually be malfunctioning? Again, planning is key. You don't want to try your generator for the first time before you need it. As soon as you purchase it, make sure to test it following the manufacturer's operating instructions, troubleshooting as needed, becoming familiar with its operation, and look for excessive smoke or strange noises to your point about any malfunction. Today, you mentioned carbon monoxide exposure. Would there be any warning signs of exposure? Yes, that's a great question, Erica, because everyone needs to be aware of how carbon monoxide attacks the body. You need to know the symptoms, headache, dizziness, nausea, fatigue, shortness of breath. If you feel these symptoms, leave right away. In fact, the symptoms can be similar to those caused by other illnesses such as the cold, flu, or food poisoning. If you or your family members are experiencing any of these symptoms, get outside to fresh air immediately. Call 911 for emergency medical attention. In the event that there is a a carbon monoxide exposure, what could one do to help combat that exposure? Maybe just proper distance from the machine? Proper distance is, of course, one. Uh, Take your generator outside. And being uh, aware that carbon monoxide is terribly dangerous. One line of defense is staying alert with carbon monoxide detectors. And, And this has to do less with portable generators and more to do with general home safety. After all, appliances like gas powered kitchen appliances, chimneys, furnaces, and many other common household appliances can emit carbon monoxide. And the the list anyone can do is get a carbon monoxide detector and test it regularly. One one more thing that can be done as it relates to detection, the NCPGMA G300 standard includes carbon monoxide shutoff systems. So this standard includes requirements for generators to be equipped with carbon monoxide shutoff technology. And while each brand is unique, all generators that meet the standard automatically sense the carbon monoxide levels if they approach uh, dangerous levels. And it will shut off the portable generator. And once the engine has been shut off, a light remains illuminated for a minimum of five minutes. So apart from just listening to your body and, and, and watching out for any signs of exposure, we have a machine that, that is built to also detect carbon monoxide and would automatically shut down, which is, which is great in, in helping keeping us safe. You are correct. The, the newer generators do, and, and it's clearly advertised. Which I guess is also worth mentioning that if you do have an older style generator that you had maybe sitting in the garage for, for a couple of years or, or not, probably worth bringing out and testing and just making sure that it's running okay before you would need that. Absolutely. And don't forget your carbon monoxide alarms. Now, real quick, just because we're in South Florida and you know, one minute it's raining, the next minute it's sunny. Let's throw weather into the mix. 
Can portable generators be used outside during any type of weather, whether it's rain, extreme heat, storms? So generators can pose a risk of shock and electrocution if there's any kind of wet condition. If you must use the generator when it's wet outside, uh, you need to protect the generator from moisture and, and follow the owner's manual, the, the operating instructions manual. And this will help avoid shock and electrocution, but do so operating the generator as far away as possible and make sure to have your hands dry. That is if they're, they're wet before touching the generator. Yeah, very important, especially if it is one of these older generators that maybe is dusty or, or dirty with oil or something since it's been in the garage. You know, you don't want your hands to be wet after washing all that off your hands before operating the, um, this machine. Absolutely. Now, I know you've mentioned several times, which I guess is the most important message to take from all of this is read your owner's manual. Um, but other than the owner's manual, are there any other tips or maybe no-no's? for owners to know before operating a portable generator? Uh, absolutely, Erica. The um, main thing to remember is taking your generator outside as far away as possible. Uh, PGMA maintains a safety awareness website. In fact, it is www.takeyourgeneratoroutside.com. Go to this website for more tips on the portable use of generators. And last, please spread the word. Uh, owners don't necessarily mean one member of the family. Just like fire safety, we encourage these messages be shared with everyone around the household. And if your power is out, it might be for others in your neighborhood. If you see a portable generator being used dangerously, share the safety information. It could save a life. Okay, and I want to repeat that website that you just mentioned, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It's www.takeyourgeneratoroutside.com. Correct. All this very helpful information and keeping us safe. Guillermo, thank you again for keeping us informed and, of course, safe on how to properly use our portable generators at our own homes. Thank you, Erica. My pleasure. The Seven Weather Team would like to thank Guillermo Rodriguez and the Portable Generator Manufacturer Association for their dedication to educating consumers on keeping safe while using a portable generator. Your ongoing efforts of keeping us safe in the event of emergency has not gone unnoticed. That's all for now. From the Seven Weather Team, I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado. Thanks, Erica. A fill fact when we come back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. And now, here's a fill fact. In 2020, when Hurricane Laura struck coastal Louisiana, more deaths were caused by improper generator use than from the storm. 15 storm deaths were reported, with eight of those from carbon monoxide poisoning. In our next issue. Next week on whether or not we talk about sea turtles. Nearly all species of sea turtles are classified as endangered. 
and we will be bringing in two experts from Florida Atlantic University, postdoctoral fellow Dr. Sean Williamson and PhD student Emily Turla to talk to us about why should we care about protecting sea turtles and the marine community. We're going to dive deeper into the subject and talk about their research. A special edition of Whether or Not, which drops August 17th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.